Welcome to Hablamos, Conversations on Teaching, Learning and Biomultilingualism, the podcast of the ICME EE project at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. As is mentioned in the name, the main goal of this podcast is to embrace multilingualism. So we are going to have conversation around this topic in the classroom and how teachers can support by a multilingual development. I'm Araceli Lobato and I will be your host. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi, everybody. Today we have Dr. Amanda Morales. Oh man, that feels so good. I'm be able to say a proper name. <laughs> like, you know, I figured it out that um, bilingual or multilingual people, we are very hard with ourselves when we are telling uh, some words or pronunciations. So for me, doing this podcast is very complicated sometimes because of the surname or the last name of the interviewees. So, oh, that feels so good that I can pronounce <laughs> it. <laughs> so welcome to our podcast. Um, uh, we usually started um, with introducing the, um, uh, the guests. So what can you tell us about yourself a little bit? Okay. Um, well, I am uh, a blend of cultural backgrounds. I grew up in, in very, very rural Western Kansas. My mother is Native American and Irish, and my father is Mexican-American. Wow, such and a combination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I often get asked, what are you? Because it's kind of hard for mm -hmm. me to, uh, it's hard for folks to understand mm -hmm. just by looking at me, my background. But um, my, fi uh, my father was a migrant farm worker, mm -hmm. and he harvested everything from cherries to cucumbers, sugar beets. Mm-hmm wheat all over the United States from, from about the time um, he was nine. Wow. And so his education was very intermittent, and he struggled to complete school. Um, and so uh, he landed in western Kansas. He met my mom at a street dance and um, <laughs> decided to stick around Kansas. He still traveled to, to work, mm -hmm. so he was gone a lot, but um, he made Kansas his home. He's originally from Texas. But given that Western Kansas is predominantly German Catholic farming communities, mm -hmm. uh, it made it, things kind of rough for him as a, a Mexican-American Mexican. and one of the very few people with brown skin, in, mm -hmm. really in the whole region. There were no African-Americans. Wow. He was the only Hispanic in the, in the town, in my hometown. And then his brother came along not long mm -hmm. after that. But so there was lots of um, cultural and language dynamics and struggles that happened because for him, yeah. life in Western Kansas. But um, my mother valued his culture and his language so much that she did everything she could to learn Spanish and to share wow. it with us at home as much as she could. But given that she wasn't fluent and um, he was gone so much, I mm -hmm. wasn't able to develop a fluency of, of Spanish, Spanish from the time I was young. And... Um, It's hard to put words to that mm -hmm. as as an adult now. I it was a lack of completeness. Mm -hmm. um, I when we would go back to Texas and interact with my dad's side of the family, they called me Huera or Huerita. Mm -hmm. They um, uh, would tease me for my Spanish and my <laughs> pronunciation of words, and and um, I was never ever 
I didn't ever fully feel like I fit in mm-hmm. with my dad's side of the family, but I was also the only brown kids at my mom's side of the family. And so I never really, I think they, I was loved and I was accepted and I had a wonderful childhood, but there was definitely always, we were different. Mm-hmm. Me and my sisters and my cousins um, later were different. Yeah. And so that was a struggle. But um, in school, uh, my language and my culture was was never accounted for. I can't think of, think of a single time where it was used as a tool or that it was even ever asked about. Um, mm-hmm. And that made it difficult because it was such an important part of my life um, and my home life. And one thing I tell my students as a as a professor that I tell my students is that children's culture, for some, their cultural heritage, like mm-hmm. their ethnic background, matters little, if at all, to them. They can't even name it or describe it. They, To them, what matters is maybe their friends, the activities that they're involved with, you know, um, spending time with their family is important, mm-hmm. sure. But for some other kids whose language and culture is not the majority, it's everything. It's so everything for some for kids, it's nothing. But for other kids, it's everything. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's everything. It's who they are. It's how they exist. It's how they think. It's how they um, engage or interact with the world and, and um, those in it. And it, and it colors, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively, yeah, literally. colors everything yeah. um, that they see and do. And so that's really important for us to understand as we're thinking about bilingual education in particular. Um, and... I have to tell you that I just find it ironic that um, language is not utilized more readily in schools. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem and we don't take into consideration those things, but um, it's for kids, it's very important for them to support their home language. And as you were saying at the beginning, uh, this kind of thing can um, create them like a kind of uh, identity us- issue or uh, mm-hmm. because they they don't fit. They feel that they, they don't belong to anywhere, no one side, not the other one because the characteristic physical appearance of the language. So in other things, this podcast is a tool that we want to create to help those teachers to take into account those students that are bilingual or multilingual and they are (coughs) just maybe they are newcomers or they have been here living for a while but they haven't feel any support in the um in their language the the language that they speak at home so um yeah i think it's very important the the thing that you have said one thing i it makes me think of is uh the analogy of a house it's like yes I'm asking you to build a house and I want you to build that house to be strong and sturdy and have all of the elements that I want you to have, right? A mm-hmm. full and complete house with all of the pieces. However, I'm going to tell you that you can't use a hammer, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like we, we tell students, you're building a house and it's important that you build this house and you need to have this and you need to have this and you need to do this. Oh, but by the way, the, the single most important tool, the most efficient, effective, useful tool that comes the most natural to you mm-hmm. and would seem to be the most realistic and rational, you can't use. Mm-hmm. And we're going to chastise you every time we see you <coughs> using a hammer. 
So, um, and I, I know that's a bit silly, but that's really what we do to students when we discount their native language, their heritage language, and we don't see it as a really, really powerful tool yeah. to help bridge them to new content and new ideas and new language and, and new vocabulary. Um, and it, it's tragic. It, it's, it's fundamentally um, a key fundamental issue in education, I, I feel like. And for me, it's, it's ironic, actually, that um, well-resourced families, and if you were to look at kind of the curriculum op- options mm-hmm. for students in well-resourced schools, they have Latin, English, German, Spanish, all of these other language options that are either available in the formal school curriculum or they are supplemental programs that parents pay a significant amount of money to get their children <coughs> access to. So they pay an exorbitant amount of money for children to enroll in these foreign language programs to develop their fluency um, and they even spend money to send them abroad to gain mm-hmm. that fluency, right? So yeah. it's more than just the book knowledge to have an immersive experience where they develop fluency in the language. Yet we have children coming into our classrooms with sometimes one, two, three languages. And we reprimand them and we do everything we can to program it out of them. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, in well-resourced schools and well-resourced families spend a great deal of money and time and energy to help develop that, to make their children marketable and competitive and well-rounded. But we've got children who have that, and we don't see it as an asset. To me, it's just ridiculous and and frustrating yeah. um, and a true problem. And it really is about a paradigm shift in how we see language yeah. in schools. And how do you think that this can change? I know that is a difficult question, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it has to start with um, a shift in, in paradigm for administrators, mm-hmm. policymakers, and teachers. They, there has to be a shift in the value that they see or the value that they place on the funds of knowledge that children are bringing into schools. Mm-hmm. There ha- they have to come to an understanding that while their funds of knowledge may look and sound different than um, your middle class or upper middle class majority white student culture and language. While they may have different registers, they may have different um, uh, ways at approaching communication, that that's still a fund, it's still a resource, and it's one that can be could and should be used readily in schools. So I think a lot needs to be done at the policy level mm-hmm. in relation to how open we are to bilingual education. Mm-hmm. I think that the research is clear um, on the benefits of bilingual education for all students, not only the, not only the newcomers, n- newcomers or and um, second or English no. learners, but also the majority English um, student-speaking uh, students that cognitively it, it opens up areas of the brain. It, it increases functioning in so many ways. Um, I think they have to not only hear and understand that research, they have to be willing to um, stretch themselves mm-hmm. and allow latitude in their schools to um, then encourage teachers to do the same in their mm-hmm. classrooms. And in the 
like in the lower level, what do you think that we can do in order to change these things like teachers or families or just regular people? What do you think that we can we can have in our hand to to promote the um, development of the um, the language of the home and, and the culture and, and support these kind of uh, students? Well, I would say um, all of us have the opportunity to embrace difference and seek out difference. And when you hear a language that does not sound familiar or you interact with someone who's, who's maybe culture, background, religious um, uh, perspectives are different than yours, see that as an opportunity as opposed to something to be fearful of or um, avoid. Mm -hmm. Everyday interactions. I encourage my students, when you're walking down the, the, the sidewalks of mm -hmm. UNL campus, take your dang headphones out of your ears. Look around. Make <laughs> eye contact with the students you're passing. Smile at them. Communicate with your body and your eyes. Be real with people. Be authentic. Be present with people more. I think that in doing so, you notice and appreciate difference mm -hmm. much more readily. And then the next time you're standing in line at the grocery store and you hear two people behind you in line speaking a different language, your immediate response isn't, oh, why do they have to do that? Why don't they speak English? Are they talking about me? I tell my students, why do you think that? <laughs> why would they be talking about you? Do you really think you're that important um, that you, you, know, you are the only thing that they have to talk about? Um, but be, being open to learning new languages, um, trying, trying out languages, um, and not just those that are deemed um, high status or of high value, but variations of language, mm -hmm. I think, increases individuals' appreciation. And it also helps teachers in particular be less fearful of students' language and to see more opportunity to use them as a resource in classes, in classrooms. Yeah, and they can put in, in their studentships that sometimes teachers uh, forget about that and how difficult it is for maybe international students yes. or newcomers, whatever, uh, how difficult it is to learn in, in another language that is not your first language. Just so the sheer cognitive load exactly. of... Yeah. Yeah. hours and hours and hours of being immersed if you've ever been I also encourage my my monolingual students to tr seek out places where you are the minority in that mm -hmm. space um, uh, and try and negotiate and navigate those spaces and do it more than just once and do it more for more than just a half hour mm -hmm. um, see what it feels like to be othered to be not part of the majority it does it increases your appreciation so much and you realize cognitively that if you're around people who speak a language that you know a bit of just how taxing it is to, to keep up yeah it's like oh i'm with it i'm with the, I, I understand what they're saying oh nope, nope. i'm lost <laughs> again and then it's like you'll get you'll pick up again and you'll be with it and you'll think you know what's going on and then someone will say something and you're like oh i don't get it i don't know what they're talking about i thought i did but i don't <laughs> and it's taxing it's stressful yeah. it's a frustrated. lot yeah and yeah. you students are perpetually frustrated and it's important as teachers to see what that feels like to know what that um what students endure every day, it mm -hmm. makes you much more empathetic. It makes you much more Tolerance. willing. 
Yeah, and you're willing to find creative ways to scaffold um, to make that experience less frustrating for them. I think the conversation today, it's going to be very helpful for those teachers that maybe they haven't thought about the thing that we have talked today. So maybe they don't know the problem that the student may have because they are bilingual or multilingual or the um, the struggle that they are uh, suffering in, in their school. So we try to promote and to try to see the bright side of their life. So mm -hmm. with this kind of little thing that we are doing for them, maybe we step by step, we are gonna make a change. In at least, I don't know in the world, <laughs> but at least in, <laughs> in Lincoln or in Nebraska or, actually this podcast is gonna be here around the world. So Wonderful. who knows? Wonderful. <laughs> so thank, thank you so you. much. You bet, it's an honor. And if you want to, contact her or just uh, ask her question about her work or her thoughts, uh, you, you can click on the podcast notes and you are going to see her email. Thank you so much. Gracias.